Welcome to PNCC Speak, the language of the executives. I'm Carol Daniel here with Michael Scully, Regional President of PNC. Each podcast features local and regional C-level executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform provides insights on forward thinking business approaches that disrupt the status quo and encourage business leaders to think differently. Today, Mike and I welcome Ryan Smalley, Chief Information Security Officer at PNC. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Let's talk about ransomware, shall we? Not always in the headlines, is it still happening and what categories are most impacted? Uh, Carol, thanks very much for having me here, first of all. Um, and I think if there's any reason that ransomware is not in the headlines, it's only because bigger headlines have, uh, have come along and pushed it aside. I believe that's only temporary. Uh, there's about one ransomware attack every 11 seconds. That was in 2021. And it's only become more frequent since then. And the main reason is because ransomware pays. Uh, bad actors are going to follow the money. And right now they're being extremely successful in gaining money uh, from doing ransomware attacks. So I think maybe it's beneficial to sort of set the stage on when we say ransomware, what do we mean? Um, and basically it is a bad actor, an individual or a group or a nation state. They come in many different flavors that finds a way to inject malicious code into an organization or a company's uh, infrastructure, into their software. And this code will often encrypt data. And that means the company's systems and their IT solutions and their data center uh, no longer work. There's no way for those systems to read the data because it's encrypted. They don't have access to customer information or marketing information because it's encrypted. And so the ransomware perpetrator says, I'll, I'll decrypt it for you for a price. If you pay the price, I give you the decryption key. You go on your merry way. I go on mine. That's where the word ransom uh, comes into ransomware. We've heard of malware, for example, um, in the past. This is where the ransom aspect comes in. So a couple things about it, uh, in addition to the frequency, is the fact that it's successful. Most of the time, ransomware attacks are successful. Companies want to get up and get moving again. The average payment a few years ago was about $2,000 uh, per ransomware attack. We saw one last year for $40 million. Uh, here in the U.S., the Biden administration, prior to some of the other headlines that have, uh, again, taken over the news, really began to crack down on ransomware. Um, and one of the driving reasons there, beyond the fact that it's illegal and it's, uh, it's criminal uh, and it's theft, is the fact that some of these folks have gotten very creative in what types of things they attack. They have begun to attack infrastructure, uh, not, not IT, computer and internet, and you can't use your laptop or you can't use a desktop. No, I'm talking about critical infrastructure out um, that we use every day. For those of you that might remember the Colonial Pipeline ransomware event, all of a sudden that shut down for a while, gas getting to us. They've shut down HVAC systems in large high rises during the middle of the summer so that all the tenants are forced to leave. They shut down fire suppression systems. In this world where everything's connected by the Internet, someone who decides to do bad things uh, using their knowledge of the Internet can get pretty creative on how they intend to do it and where they want to attack. So it's something to keep an eye out for. We um, Just to maybe put a bow on it. 
We see double extortion ransomware out there as well, which is I've taken your data and I've encrypted it. And now, by the way, to put more pressure on you, I'm going to start to sell that data on the dark web. Companies all of a sudden can lose access to proprietary or important competitive information or could be embarrassed, quite honestly. Carol, you asked what sector or what industry gets hit the most by ransomware. Quite honestly, it's across the board. But we have seen education and retail be at the top mainly because those two systems, those two sectors, IT systems, uh, are often are not as well protected, if you will, because they haven't had to go through as much scrutiny or attacks as maybe the financial sector, the government sector, and, and, and that sort of thing. So it stands to reason that uh, that, that might be the case. So Ryan, I'm, I'm literally shaking here hearing this, uh, you know, because this, this could not end well for many, many people. So what well, if a company receives a ransomware, what are they supposed to do? What is their first step? Great question. So there's a website out there. It's CISA. It's Cybersecurity Information Security Agency. They're so they're so focused on security, they use it twice, Michael, in their in their acronym. But it's a government agency, CISA, that has tips and literally a, a checklist, if you will. If I've been subject or the victim of ransomware, here's what I need to do. Step one, first of all, is to inform CISA or the Secret Service or the FBI. And the reason that you do that is because um, some of these uh, bad actors, many of them do ransomware attacks, the same attack across multiple companies. So there is a chance that law enforcement has already seen it and might already have the decryption key. Nonetheless, it's a requirement to notify when you've been subject to ransomware. And, uh, and that would be step one. Step two, Michael, contain it. So unplug your systems, uh, turn things off, um, pull away from the internet for a second, um, try to determine, did this happen? If it did happen, are we able to limit where we're seeing the encryption? And that sort of uh, call it battlefield triage to contain it. And then from that, quite honestly, sir, it becomes uh, multiple steps based upon the extent of the attack and the importance of your data. And probably more than anything else, the the backups that you may have of that data you can't you can't be subject to ransom if you have a backup of the data that they say they've encrypted and that's probably your best defense against these types of attacks is is good uh good hygiene when it comes to packing up your data i i hear backup and i do think of the cloud so as the chief operating security officer at pnc i imagine a lot of employees there your co-workers think that it is safe if it is in the cloud what what do you say to that is the software safe in the cloud another great question so nowhere's safe uh, and that's not trying to be alarmist that's just saying that if it's connected to the internet then that means it's connected to a network uh where bad guys can get in and and do bad things and the cloud is not any different or any special compared to an on-prem solution on-premises solution if you have your own data center there can be benefits to being in the cloud. Uh, there can be uh, disadvantages to being in the cloud. All of a sudden, you're dependent upon another organization, whether that's Amazon or Microsoft or Google, uh, to, to really help with some of the security stuff. That said, those are pretty big companies that know their way around IT. So depending upon them might be very beneficial for you if maybe you're a smaller shop that doesn't have a large IT budget. At the end of the day, I think the best answer is probably a mix, Carol. Have some of your information on-prem, some on the cloud. 
in the financial sector, for example, we're, we're a little bit hesitant, as you can imagine, putting up uh, personally identifiable information that's called PII in the cloud. We'd like to keep that close to home and make sure we protect it as much as we can. But at the end of the day, each company needs to make that decision for themselves. So, Ryan, back up a minute. You, you mentioned they get into your system. So on a pretty daily basis, I get these fake emails that are sent to me, which are, you know, you want a prize, you want an award, claim your prize, click here. Is that how they get in? What, what, are, what are those all about? And are those effective? That is uh, one of the main ways indeed, Michael. So there's probably three. What you just described is phishing, and you also can have it vishing with a V. Um, you can have spear phishing, but they're all different types of techniques where someone that has bad intent sends an email often or, and quite honestly for, for your audience here, texts are becoming more and more the world of, um, of these campaigns. People sort of trust text more than they do email, might click a link in the text that you receive uh, more readily than you would in an email. And, um, and be careful about that because it works in both, both mediums. But once you click that button, that's like um, inviting Nosferatu across the threshold. Now the bad person is in. Uh, there can still be security things that are there to try to catch that person, even though you inadvertently uh, or unknowingly clicked a bad link. But that is a major uh, step um, that that takes us one step closer to a bad day uh, by letting someone in. So that's the number one cost, phishing. Um, number two is um, quite honestly just systems that are not kept up to date. So there's vulnerabilities in everything. Uh, you, no one's perfect. Developers aren't perfect. Um, you develop new software, you put a tool out there and you didn't realize that there was a little hole over here in the corner that allows something bad to get in. Those are vulnerabilities. Those are exposures. And by staying up to date and current with your software, um, you're able to limit those number of, of holes or entryways. So patching and currency become a number two way to sort of fend off ransomware. Number one, don't click on links. Number two, uh, keep your stuff current. And number three is remote desktop protocol compromise. You often hear this called RDP compromise. And that's uh, very similar to vulnerabilities in software. It's just a way that someone can sort of tunnel into your computer remotely and then move around inside there finding information that they want that might open up other doors for additional data uh, and, uh, you know, the beginnings of a ransomware attack. Ryan, uh, my son is a 100% remote worker. And so now companies, because of, of course, the pandemic, a lot of people are, are going to continue to work at home. Uh, when you talk about what you call zero trust security, and you talk about the main principles of that, does that pertain to those people like my son who are, who are remote workers? And what is it? Two very big concepts there, Carol. One is uh, remote work or hybrid work and what we need to do as organizations and security professionals and C-suite executives to protect our company and our employees. And then the second term that you mentioned, zero trust, is actually uh, one type of technique that seems to be getting and has been getting uh, justifiably slow. So uh, a lot of a lot of press. Let's start with the zero trust one. Uh, we call it actually adaptive trust or adaptive security here at PNC. One of the reasons is because the word zero trust sort of implies I don't trust you at all, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Worker. And that's not really the intent of, of zero trust. What it is trying to do is it is saying that you will have access to a system 
for the time that you need it and only that time that you need it. And before you get that access, every time it's going to check, is this really you? So for example, the way most organizations have been built is we have firewalls. Think of that as a wall and moat defense, a perimeter of defense around a certain company. And you keep the bad people out by keeping them out of the perimeter. But once you're in the perimeter, you know, now you're inside the castle, you can do a lot of bad things. What zero trust does, or sort of more adaptive trust or adaptive security, is it says, we know people are going to get over the wall. We're still going to have the wall, but eventually people are going to get over it or swim under the moat or come in the back door when no one's looking. And now they're inside. And Zero Trust basically says, we're still not going to let you access systems in here, except for a very much a point in time transaction. Michael is a bad person that got inside my perimeter. Michael wants to access application ABC. Has Michael ever accessed that before? Then no, we're not going to let him. If he only accessed that for two hours a year during tax return time, and now he's trying to access it in in September, that would be another thing. It sees a pattern of behavior and says, no, thank you. I don't think we're going to do this. So it's a way to prevent lateral movement in a way by making sure that when you do give access, you give it on a point in time for a specific time for a specific application for a specific user. And then once that work is done, access is revoked. On the hybrid or remote work, Carol, very quickly, we've, we've seen that as well. Um, first of all, there's a lot of benefits for employees so uh, and, and for organizations as we all move forward on this. And from a security perspective, you want to be able to support the business need and the direction the company's going while at the same time protecting the company and the employees. And one of the things that we've done there uh, by way of example is ensure that we have the right controls and rules in place that don't allow employees, for example, to willingly or mistakenly print things that they shouldn't print or you have data loss prevention protocols and rules so they can't download things that they shouldn't be able to download. Um, That's where you can see people get in trouble. They might download a a customer list um, as they're heading out to a different company. Um, And those are the things you want to try to stop from a security perspective. So by increasing the controls and the monitoring on on the laptops of the remote workers, we're able to sort of ensure that they don't get themselves or the company in trouble might sound a little bit like Big Brother, but at the end of the day, I think it's in the better, uh, best interest for, for everyone. And we've had a lot of success with it, both domestically and internationally, where we've sent a number of our workers that used to be in what's called offshore delivery centers home to work from home. And they're, they're thankful for that. That helps them with their own family lives. And it's one of the things we want to support. We just want to do it in a deliberate and, uh, and cyber-minded fashion. So, Ryan, were there any unintended consequences, this dramatic uh, hybrid work culture, the work from home culture, any unintended consequences in technology or cyber resulting from that, you know, learnings, if you will? I think for us, we went through a number of hoops along with our regulatory partners, so the government, to make sure that moving away from those offshore delivery centers, even if it's only temporarily, Um, was done in a thoughtful manner that did not expose banking customers' information, personally identified information, account information, names, addresses, that type of stuff. We didn't want to expose that any more or any less than we would if they were still in a normal ODC and in a normal world pre-pandemic. And those types of uh, 
controls, Michael, we had to stand up and make sure they were they work in a remote fashion, test them, uh, quite honestly. And then once we're sure things are good, we could move forward. So there were some hurdles, but surprisingly, uh, you know, I, I can speak for PNC or maybe just my department. I would say surprisingly, despite the fact that everyone was at work on a Monday and no one was at work on a Tuesday and that lasted for up to two years, um, we seem to weather the slings and arrows pretty well throughout that. And, and quite honestly, our workers have shown that they're able to do their job remote just as if they did in the in the office. And that's something that, you know, we want to recognize as we move forward. Ryan, I can't imagine all that you have to concern yourself with. Uh, do you are you up at night? Are you able to sleep with the responsibility <laughs> and the ever evolving nature of, for instance, ransomware attacks? I am, but Carol, I'm pretty good at sleeping. That might be that might be the first the first part. I was uh, I was a pilot in the military for ten years, and I learned to get sleep when I can. That said, uh, you know, not no joking matter. There are a lot of threats, and it's an ever changing environment. And every time you think you've got one attack figured out, another one comes along. Um, if there's anything right now that stands out the most in my mind, it's the the threat of nation states engaging in cyber attacks. Um, as a company, we take a lot of pride in, in our cyber posture and our defense, but one company going up against certain nation states that have an army of, uh, a very skilled, uh, cyber professionals that have shown the capacity and willingness to use that army, um, that, that fight eventually only, uh, ends one way. So that's one we're keeping an eye on and trying to ensure that, um, that we're not a target, quite honestly, um, no one can protect their house from any type of burglar. If someone really wants to get in, they're going to get in. But if, if your house looks more protected than the person across the street, then you, you tend to do a little bit better in the long run. And that's what we're trying to do. Just stay on top of the game uh, as it does change, Carol. Well, what I know about a military pilot is he can handle pressure. And we do thank <laughs> you for your service. That is Ryan Smalley, Chief Information Security Officer at PNC. For our entire podcast with Ryan, go to kmox.com slash PNC C-Speak. PNC C-Speak, the language of executives.